Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, to another Pain Talk podcast. I wanted to take some time in with this pod this week to build on an important topic that we discussed last week with Dr. Fiona Campbell and Maria who were the co-chairs of the Canadian Pain Task Force. And this is the area of where the World Health Organization, or the WHO as we often refer to it, uh, recognizing chronic pain as a legitimate disease. I just think we need to dig a little bit deeper into this and try and understand the importance of this and the implication it has for all of us who work in healthcare. But I think more importantly is how it validates chronic pain as a disease in its own right. Um, and this is a big thing. It's a really big deal, even though it doesn't seem like it, it is a really big deal. As I mentioned, it just is an important uh, development that's happened just uh, in May of 2019. The other thing that was really important, so we talk about the ICD, and that's uh, the International Classification of Diseases. So there's been a total of 11. So the ICD-11 is the first version of the ICD that's been developed since the 1800s, believe it or not, to actually include chronic pain. I'm going to give you a little bit of historical perspective because uh, it did change in the early part of the 1900s around when the ICD classification came in. But it's, it's kind of an interesting organization, actually, the World Health Organization, as well as the groups that uh, were developed initially to create some database or some commonality around diseases and mortality associated with diseases. So the chronic pain classification was developed by a task force of the International Association for the Study of Pain, which is the IASP, and you've heard that us talk about that in previous podcasts. The classification that was done with the ICD was based on current scientific evidence, and it was also built on that biopsychosocial model that we often refer to with chronic pain, and pain in general, actually. As I mentioned, it not only changed how we think about chronic pain, but it also helps us understand the uniqueness of this complex illness and how we study it. So other things that matter around this, besides the legitimization of chronic pain and the validation for patients living with this complex illness, it also becomes really important around research because all of a sudden we're all talking the same language, so we're comparing oranges to oranges rather than oranges to apples. So that communication piece is really important. And if I'm doing education, uh, for uh, a group of health professionals, and I'm talking chronic pain primary versus secondary, everyone in that area is going to know what I'm actually talking about once we sort of get this information out there and we create a situation where it becomes the norm. And I'll give you another example where that might have happened is that when, I, when we think of people that are having strokes, we often think about different types of strokes, and there is a commonality in that language. So we talk about you know, middle cerebral artery or posterior circulation. Everybody knows what that is and what that entails. So I think it's the same sort of benefit of having this classification system. The other thing is that it's going to make a difference uh, around research so that we are studying and understanding uh, commonalities or when we're looking at uniqueness around specific groups, how chronic pain primary groups are very different than chronic pain secondary groups. It can also help us with new therapies, uh, looking at these two groups, improve our communication, as I, uh, as I mentioned, as well as how we study it. So how was this classification developed? So it all started in, uh, I mean, it's been going on actually for, for a while. There's always been this movement towards trying to classify some of the complexity around chronic pain. An example in the ICD-10, fibromyalgia was actually classified. 
So what we started to see in early January of 2019 is a series of papers that were published uh, in the Journal of Pain. And what they did is they provided a general overview of the classification for chronic pain and explained the fundamental distinctions between chronic pain primary and chronic secondary pain. In general, chronic pain is defined as pain that lasts or recurs for more than three months, and we've discussed that in a previous uh, podcast. Just to remind us the difference between acute pain and chronic pain, so acute pain is seen as temporary, serves as a warning, usually resolves as tissue heals, but it will still, uh, pain will still be produced in order to protect that tissue, and usually completely resolves by three months. Chronic pain is seen as a condition or a disease that is persistent. Generally, uh, it's no longer serving a purpose. It doesn't serve as an effective warning system. In fact, nothing dangerous or bad is actually happening in the tissue despite the ongoing pain, and generally this does not resolve. If we look at chronic pain further in terms of how it was classified with the World Health Organization, is that it was seen as chronic primary pain and chronic secondary pain. So chronic primary pain, and I'll dig into this a little bit more, emerges without a known trigger. So these are often patients that will come in they have an unknown trigger. So when we think of what triggers pain, injury, illness, surgery, or unknown trigger, this primarily would be the unknown trigger group. And what happens is that they get a gradual onset. Usually something will trigger it, although they don't have any specific recollection of what that trigger might be. Uh, Pain occurs and it never goes away. Sometimes these patients have diffuse body pain, which is classic for central sensitization. Uh, They can have other things as well that we'll dig into in a second. Chronic secondary pain in general usually emerges as a symptom of an underlying uh, health condition. So this would be a patient who has a diagnosis of cancer who also has a diagnosis of persistent pain. Persistent pain often will happen after that diagnosis of cancer. If we dig a little bit deeper into chronic primary pain, basically chronic primary pain is pain in one or more anatomical region that persists or recurs for longer than three months and is associated with significant emotional distress, either anxiety, anger, frustration, and depressed mood, and or significant functional disability. That means that the pain is interfering in their activities of daily life and their ability to participate in social activities or social roles. And the symptoms are not better accounted for by any other diagnosis. It's a lot of things that are there, but primarily there are no underlying conditions that have been identified as driving this pain. It doesn't mean that the pain isn't real, obviously, but this just means that it would fit into this category of chronic primary pain. And you see this in clinical practice for patients who have persistent pain and are not really sure what brought this on. I think this is a really important category to think about because it truly does legitimize. It's very hard for this this population to say, okay, I have pain. It is real but they're not able to say, okay, what sort of drove this? So oftentimes they're not believed when in fact it's very real what they're experiencing. So recognizing chronic primary pain as one of the subclassifications in chronic pain is really important. So this primary pain also includes the following subdiagnosis. So that's that chronic widespread pain that we talked about. So that's a primarily a, a, a central sensitization phenomenon. Uh, they can get complex regional pain syndrome chronic primary headache or orofacial pain, chronic primary visceral pain, chronic primary musculoskeletal pain. So these are some of the sub-diagnosis or categories that have been identified in the uh, ICD classification. So let's look at chronic secondary pain. 
Chronic secondary pain is diagnosed when pain originally emerges as a symptom of another underlying health condition. So it may persist even after that condition has been treated, in which case it is also considered a disease in its own right. So I think this is super, super important from a healthcare provider's perspective when we're helping patients understand the complexity of their pain experience. I always want to separate out chronic pain from other disease entities. So if that patient has a cancer diagnosis, for example, breast cancer, and that patient has had effective treatment, is considered to be uh, have a very stable disease, then uh, and we're not seeing anything new progress with respect to their, uh, their cancer diagnosis, but they have persistent pain, then I have them separate out the chronic pain from that breast cancer because the whole thing just gets overwhelming. So how I would look at somebody with a previous history of cancer who has got persistent pain would be important to make sure there's no new pathology, and that's always a really important thing. But unfortunately, these patients can get over-investigated, so get too much exposure to CT scans. So it's really difficult sometimes to find that sweet balance around how much do you investigate, because often it can still be uh, unnerving or unreassuring that the scans and the blood work are all showing that the cancer itself is very stable when somebody feels intense pain. So separating out the uh, coexisting conditions from their persistent pain is really important. And often when I'm sitting with a patient or a client in the pain clinic, I often will ask them the question, what do they think with respect to their pain journey has been the driver of their persistent pain? So they may pull in something like degenerative disc disease, or they may pull in something like Crohn's disease, or they pull in something like endometriosis. Those are really important to embrace because they make up part of that patient's DNA or protoplasm. So it's an important part of their pain journey. But we want to separate chronic pain from those other conditions. Really, really important. Because then what we can do is help the patient focus energy into how they get the chronic pain piece better managed. So how I'm going to manage and follow the cancer pain or the rheumatoid arthritis is going to be very different than how I manage or follow up on the chronic pain. Even though they can infect each other, it is really important to see the goals of care, to see the treatment is very different. Uh, And it's really helpful, I think, at times for the patient to separate those out as well as the healthcare provider, especially when we're looking at how we can help that patient get a better control over that pain and finding the right kinds of tools to help them uh, get their flare-ups under control as well. The new ICD-11 classification system also includes a code for pain severity, which accounts for pain intensity, emotional distress, and interference with function. So this is another part of the classification system which includes a code for these other, other aspects of the uh, chronic pain diagnosis. So why is the ICD-11 important? So the ICD stands for the International Classification of Diseases. So it's important because it provides a common language for reporting and monitoring diseases in the field of healthcare. So it provides a common language. So that's really important. So this is coming back to those apples to apples. This allows the world, not just North America, it allows the world to compare and share data in a consistent and standard way, either between hospitals. So if you look at the uh, CHI-HI in terms of how we look at data uh, within hospitals, it looks at, at uh, data and consistent uh, standard way in regions of, and countries over a period of time. 
maybe I'll just say that again. So having the ICD allows the world to compare and share data in a consistent and standard way between hospitals, regions, and countries. It also facilitates the collection and storage of data to be analyzed and also around evidence-based decision-making. So you'll often see the recognition of the ICD code in research so that uh, someone who's reading that paper or that manuscript understands that this, this is a very specific type of disease. It's also a very specific classification. So who uses it? Well, users include all kinds of different health professionals. It can be physicians, nurses, other providers, researchers, health information managers and coders, uh, health information technology workers, policymakers, insurers, and patient organizations. So everyone that has an interest in this field can actually access this information. So it's been translated into 43 different languages, and it's being used by all member states. So when we talk about member states, we're talking about all these countries. So about 117 countries uh, use the system to report mortality data, a primary indicator of health status of that country. You know, the information that comes out every year about, you know, where's the best place to live, you know, who has the highest mortality. This is all coming from the ICD codes. So all member states as well are expected to use the most current version of the ICD for reporting death and disease statistics so that everybody is using the same coding system. Because you can just imagine as data comes in, research comes in, uh, and, and chronic pain is a great example, is that, that we may need to twig or change some of the classifications around some of these diseases. So, uh, and this is the um, current version is, is whatever the World Health Organization nomenclature regulations uh, have adopted. Uh, and this has been since 1967, as we mentioned. So I'll talk a little bit about what happened before that. So most uh, member states are expected to use this current version for reporting death and disability. So the history of the ICD, I keep talking that I'm going to come back to this. Well, this is really interesting. So the first international classification edition was known as the International List of Causes of Death. And it was adopted by the International Statistic Institute in 1893. So this classification or this need for classification has been around for a long time. The World Health Organization was entrusted with the ICD classification at its creation in 1948. So the World Health Organization has been around since 1948. So the WHO at that time published the sixth version, which was referred to as ICD-6, that incorporated morbidity for the first time. So 1948 uh, was the first time that the WHO published uh, the ICD classification. The WHO nomenclature regulation, which is a little bit different, uh, was adopted in 1967. So this nomenclature is what's really considered standard at this time. Um, so that uh, occurred in 1967. And it stipulated that the member states use the most current ICD revision for mortality and morbidity statistics. It is now being cited in more than 20,000 uh, scientific articles and used by more than 100 countries in the world. In fact, it's 117 countries in the world. So this is a, such an important document, very easy to access, just going into Dr. Google and put ICD classifications, and it will bring it up. And it's kind of neat to kind of uh, scroll through and, and look around. It's just very interesting. So the purpose and use of ICD, I think we, we've actually gone through some of that, is that, but we'll just kind of dig a little bit further. It's the foundation for the identification of health trends and statistics globally, and the international standard for reporting diseases and health conditions, as we mentioned. It is the diagnostic classification standard for all clinical and research purposes. Uh, the ICD defines the universe of diseases, disorders, injuries, and other related health conditions, as we mentioned. And it lists 
it in a comprehensive hierarchical fashion that allows for easy storage, easy retrieval, and analysis of that health information for evidence-based decision-making, as we talked about. It also allows for easy access for sharing and comparing health information between hospitals, regions, and settings, as well as in different countries. And it also allows for data comparison in the same location across different time periods. So you can look at trends that are occurring within communities. As we talked about, it's used primarily for looking at trends and monitoring. It's kind of interesting looking at this new coronavirus scare and uh, been around to see the SARS scare. So you see how all of these different trends and interesting things around infectious disease are changing. There is a historical context that that has been recorded in as well. That's primarily the, the gist of the ICD, but I think what's more important is the fact that the World Health Organization in its ICD classification number 11 has actually designated chronic pain as a disease in its own right. So I hope everybody has a look at that. I think it's just such an important uh, topic that we should be discussing. And it's, it's really exciting, especially when you start to see some of the development of some of the training courses for healthcare professionals, yeah, the core competencies that we talked about in previous podcasts, but also uh, how we can actually develop commonality around the language that you're using. So the timing is, it can't be any more perfect, especially with the energy that we're seeing around this, this, uh, this shift in how we're, we're recognizing and, and helping patients manage this very complex disease. So we're going to end there. Uh, hopefully we'll get you back next week. I haven't bored you too much. I get pretty pumped up about some of this stuff. I'm a little bit of a nerd around this, but hope to see you again next week on Pain Talk Podcast. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.